I ask God for your voice to lead each one of us. Thank you, God, that we all hear your voice in hundreds of ways and that it's not an issue of whether we hear. It's an issue of learning to recognize how we hear. Thank you, God, that you guide your people, you lead your people, you want relationship with each one of your people, you delight in us. And you have a will for our life, and it looks like Jesus. So give us grace as we look at your word tonight. We pray it for your sake. We pray it for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Amen. So in the beginning of the family of Israel comes the story of Abraham in Genesis 12. And he has a very, a very simple instruction, but a very extreme instruction. Does anyone remember what it is? You got it. Now the Lord said to Abram, go. That's the first command for him. <laughs> you don't like camping? <laughs> so maybe he was glamping. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. So right away, he has a relationship with God's voice. This is hundreds of years before any laws happened through Moses. This is hundreds of years before any priest, any priesthood exists, before any sacrifices exist. All he has is the invisible God who speaks somehow into his spirit, into his mind. Uh, there's not a committee. This is one of the fun things for me as, as a pastor, right? There's not a committee of people. My friend George, he got run out of ministry. It's a long story. He's absolutely a fantastic man of God. And he had to spend five, six years no longer working for a church, but just working, teaching uh, mixed martial arts and uh, jujitsu and whatever else. He, he's a, the dude's... Yeah, he And he says, uh, I said, what's it like, what's it like um, not being able to do the thing that you felt you were called to do and that you were trained to do? And he's like, oh, I was still doing it because I'm teaching martial arts. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm not just, I can't just, you can't do the martial arts unless you have good physical health. And you can't, so, so I'm teaching physical health and you can't really have good sustainable physical health if you don't have good diet. And you can't have good diet without, I can't, ignore the, I can't ignore the emotional and the relational. So the next thing you know, I'm teaching them biblical truth about Jesus and how Jesus designed us to live. And then, of course, they're asking me to baptize them. And then, of course, they're asking me where they, where we, they should go to church. So I'm pastoring. I'm teaching mixed martial arts, but I'm leading people to the Lord, and, I'm there, and the, through following the Lord, their lives are getting radically reshaped. They're not just learning how to take a dude down and pin him and get him to say, uncle, and tap the mat. I'm teaching them how to submit themselves to Christ and begin to thrive in all kinds of areas of life. And, Tim, and, and, I'm able to just do ministry the way the Lord leads me. I don't have to run it before, through some committee in a church that can vote the Holy Spirit down because they don't like it. 
and they're not comfortable with it, or that's not how we used to do it here, or that's not what we're used to, or that doesn't suit our vision, or this set of documents, or our bylaws. I can just be led by the Lord. I can just be led by the Holy Spirit and say what he tells me to say and do what he tells me to do. It's a whole lot better. So I'm getting to do the same pastoral ministry as I was trying to do in church, but I'm without all the stuffy structures. And I'm going, that's interesting. He came back different. Something about not being in the system, but just being in the presence of God. He still attended a church on Sundays, but he didn't have his life's ministry, his life's work uh, under those systems of control. He, He was just free to obey the Holy Spirit. And something about that caused him to say, yeah, I'm gonna do it differently this time. And I said, so George, how do you pastor three churches? He goes, it's so much easier. Because I pastor three churches, they can't possibly expect me to do almost anything. (laughs) So they call me up with a problem and I say, and I put it right back on them and I say, you're gonna pray about that and the Holy Spirit's gonna tell you what to do. Maybe that's the wrong words. Maybe he'll, how about this? Is this a little better? You're gonna pray about that and the Lord's going to give you wisdom about what would be good to do. And tomorrow you're gonna call me and you're gonna tell me what you've decided with, with after prayer and you're gonna handle it and I believe in you and it's gonna be good. Tell me how it goes. Have a good evening. I gotta go to the other church. He said, so now I have an excuse to actually put responsibility on the rest of them to have their own prayer life, to have their own relationship with the Holy Spirit who can lead them to do kingdom work instead of them paying me so that they don't have to grow up. I was like, George, you're crazy. But three? And he goes, well, yeah, three. And I'm like, well, do you preach the same sermon at every one? He goes, nope. I study the same Bible passage that week. And I pray and I pray and I pray and I pray. And I take notes and I take notes and I take notes. And then I also pray for each of the churches. And I write down the things that get big in my heart as I pray for the churches. Isn't that interesting? I write down the things that get real big in my heart for each church as I'm praying for those people. And then I have all these notes and I go up without them and I see what happens. And each sermon, a different thing gets pulled from the passage for that people than the other two. By the time he was done telling me what he does, I was like, I was getting hungry. For two more churches? No. For the prayer-saturated, like very disciplined and very prepared, but very flexible, like a jazz musician, right? Uh, Classical music doesn't appeal to me because you, you memorize the piece and then you play right from the music what you've already memorized perfectly and the conduct, there's no surprises. In fact, if you improvise, you're probably getting fired. But jazz musicians... They practice the scales, they practice the chord changes, they learn how, how each chord is constructed, they learn what notes feel a certain way. They, pro- they play 10 hours a day so that they prepare with crazy discipline so that when they go up in front, they can improvise with integrity. You cannot improvise with integrity unless you have prepared with discipline. You cannot pretend to be led by the Spirit and when it's really lazy, you don't, re- you don't know the Bible, you don't know his voice, you haven't been walking in obedience to the things you've been hearing, and then you show up with people around and expect that the Lord's going to take over, but you haven't practiced the scales and the chord chain, right? We want to be led by God's voice like Abraham was led by God's voice. 
That's, that's the goal, right? You cannot improvise with integrity unless we, you have prepared with discipline and diligence, right? I want to be a spirit-led man, which means I'm going to also be a disciplined man. I'm going to get up and I'm going to read my Bible whether I feel like it or not. And I'm not going to be measuring how I feel as the marker of whether or not I'm, I'm being faithful. I'm going to show up and I'm going to allow the truth of God to saturate me. Because if I know what his word says, then when I think I hear his voice, if it doesn't match his word, I know it's not. Because the, same, the spirit that wrote this book who dwells in me is not going to contradict himself. The spirit that inspired Jesus, it, he's going to lead me the exact same way. The spirit of God comes into your and my life to do in your life exactly what he did in the life of Jesus. If Jesus were in your job, in your role in the family, in your season of life. Right? Is that, is, that's not too far out there, right? The Spirit of God comes to do in and through you exactly what he did in and through the life of Jesus if he were in your shoes, in your station, as the, maybe the Puritans would have called it a station. So that's the first passage is Genesis 12. And I didn't, we didn't read all of it, but I just, the gist of it is that. I'll give you the, the, the two highlight verses. Verse one, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I'll show you. And then, of course, he gives the amazing blessings. But then it says in verse 4, so Abram went. That sounds so simple, but that becomes the basis then of everything. All biblical faith from him till us comes from this, this simplicity of it's about, this is tonight's talk, it's about God's voice. Later, I'm reading Jeremiah for my personal time, so you're going to hear some references to Jeremiah for the next little bit. And I don't mean tonight. I mean for the next while. Several times in Jeremiah, there's this repeated expression, my, the, these false prophets treat the wound of my people like it's not serious, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So Jeremiah is a man who looks out at this seemingly peaceful situation. He looks out and, and the fields are nice and full and the people seem happy and they're well-dressed and well-behaved and they're all coming to the, to the temple to worship and everyone thinks it's okay because on the surface it looks okay and he sees the children lying dead in the street, the barns are burning, the moms are screaming, the husbands are decimated by enemies, soldiers, and everything's breaking. Now, that's not what he sees with these eyes. That's what he sees with the eyes of his heart. And the reason he sees it is because he sees how fake the whole thing is. He sees a nation that seems godly on the surface, but who under the surface is worshiping false gods, the gods of the foreign surrounding lands, and disobeying the Lord in the things that matter most. So Jeremiah 7. 22 and 23. God says, in the day that I brought your ancestors out of the land of Egypt, I didn't speak to them or, or command them anything concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. So this is, by the way, he's saying this in the temple. So he's in the temple, in the place of the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And, he, and God's saying, remember when I rescued you? I didn't say anything about all this. You know what I remember? Do you remember what I said to you in the day I rescued you? I said this, 
Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk only in the way that I command you so that it may be well with you. He started off this little Jeremiah 7. God says, hey, Jeremiah, go down, stand right in the temple courts and tell these people that they in vain are saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Three three times. You remember this? He repeats it. He says, don't trust in these deceptive words. They had this idea which I learned about in like college and seminary, that, that God would never allow his temple to be destroyed. He just, it's so holy. He'll never tolerate that. He'll never allow it. And since the temple's in Jerusalem, that means he'll never what? Allow, he'll never allow Zion, Jerusalem. He'll never allow the city of David to be destroyed. And, and, and. Any prophets who say it will be destroyed are traitors and heretics. I like them apples. So Jeremiah gets this vision that God's willing to destroy his own temple because the temple's not his focus. This temple, this temple right here is his focus. Mm -hmm. And that's such a big deal. He's willing to see the stones of the temple thrown down and the people scattered since they have ignored the the various levels of loud. God God speaks in a whisper. First, he likes to speak with just a look. He he said, I can guide you with my eye on you if you love me. If you don't listen to that, he'll, he'll whisper. If you don't listen to that, he'll speak. If you don't listen to that, he'll shout. If you don't listen to that, he'll send a prophet. If you don't listen to that, he'll send more and more prophets. If you don't listen to any of them, he'll send the nations. At no point is his intention to send you to hell. At all the points, his intention is to wake us up and bring us home. But what he wants. So this doctrine is fascinating to me. There's obviously a modern Christian version of it too. God has no angry feelings since, he, since I'm saved. In the Old Testament, God was able to be angry. But in the New Testament, he just, he just, changed, he just deleted the whole, that whole part of his personality. It's not true. It's very popular. If Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and if Paul's right that Jesus was in the Old Testament with God's people, right? we saw that. Remember that? We saw that when we were talking about the people were baptized into Moses and Jesus was the rock in the wilderness. And I was like, look, look, Jesus is in the Old Testament. If he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, the the reading between, because Paul did read between the lines and he saw Jesus. So if, if if our choices, if God's made himself vulnerable enough that our choices affect him emotionally, if he's interactive and responsive, how much you want to bet there's not a similar thing in our day and age? I don't know if this is off topic or not, but as it was Genesis. So Moses was in Exodus, right? Yes. And he had the Ten Commandments. Yes. One is thou shalt not kill. Correct. That came in Exodus. Yes. But the two brothers killed, killed one in Genesis. So how, can that, how is that a sin if they didn't know it was a sin yet? Because the, because the commands 
are built on a higher principle. Right and wrong exists whether God has given any commands yet. Oh, so but they didn't know what the right or wrong did they? Oh, they knew. They knew. They knew. Okay. Right? And, and in Romans, Paul says that people who never received the law, the Gentiles, they reveal they already have the law written on their heart because they have, they have a, their conscience. So can Abel a Gentile or a Pharisee? Or? They were in the sense that they did not have very, you know, they were outside of that whole system. Okay. They, were, they were way before the whole system. Right, yeah. So you could say everyone was. Okay. You know what I mean? But, but, here, but here's the point. There is a right and wrong that God allows every human to be aware of. Really? Yes. Okay, but you, you know where I'm coming from about because yeah. it with like the, 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 Sure. Yeah, you know. So, that's why I got confused. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I didn't go off topic. You're fine. So, so you get where we're going, going from here is the God's, God's really after heart relationship always has been. He wants friendship with us. He wants voice relationship with us. He doesn't want us to be able to put it off on, on some, ah, I'm, I'm in the system. As long as I'm in the system, I'm good. He only designed the system to help foster more friendship, more intimacy, more closeness, more heart relationship. That's the point of the system is to lead to that. But who never give up on us? No, he will not. Is that what you mean? Like you want a friendship or anything with you and never give up on you? Okay. And there's some verses later on in this, in this talk right around here, well, actually, it's closer to the end of the chapter, where, where, where Jesus makes very clear that no one can snatch Jesus' sheep out of, out of his hand because his father is greater than anyone. So yeah, there's a, there's a sense of permanence to it. Okay, so Amos 3 this is a fat, fat, somebody want to look this up for me? Amos chapter three. The idea is we're special because God chose us. And, and Amos is, he's a prophet who, he, God asks him to, it, it, would be like, it would be like if he's from the south and, and, and God were to command him to go up north and prophesy to the people up north. And as soon as he shows up, he's got that accent and there's still north-south rivalry going on. And they're like, who the heck is this jerk? What do you think you're doing here? And so instead of starting by laying into the people he's talking to, he has a very interesting approach. He lays into their enemies. It's a very sneaky rhetorical approach. He, he, he goes geographically and he starts to hit all their enemies in a circle, one by one, and they're going, you know, I wasn't so sure about this guy when, when he started talking because I could tell he wasn't from around here and we don't really like him and where he's from. But he's talking some good smack about those people I hate, so I'm liking him because the enemy of my enemy is my friends. So he's drawing them in and they're like, oh, this is a good sermon. Get them, God. Get them. Get them, Philistines. Oh, yeah. Get them. And then, and then he kind of turns on them halfway through the, through the book. And okay, go ahead. Whoever's got it. Linda? Yeah. Um, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will visit upon you all your wickedness and punish you for all your iniquities. See how that's the opposite of this? You alone, you alone are my people. You're the only ones I've chosen. You're the only ones I know. You're the only ones I've made myself known like this. Therefore, I'm actually going to hold you more accountable for your sins than the rest of the world. That's the opposite of this. Well, he'll never, he'll, he'll never allow 
the temple grounds to be breached. It's unheard of. It's heresy. Who does this Jeremiah think he is telling us we need to repent? We're God's kids. Amos says a similar message, but harsh. And God, so God through Amos says, because you're my people, I, 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 take, I, I take you to task far quicker. Jesus says it this way, the one who knows, the one who knows and doesn't do it will be beaten with many blows. But the one who doesn't know and doesn't do it will be beaten with few blows. What's his point? The more light you have, the more accountable you have. The more I've poured my love on you, the more I expect you to be responsive to it. The opposite of this is the case. He expects his people who, he, who, who understand his ways to walk in his ways. Okay. Go ahead. So like with children who are young and don't understand, they pack. They're not held accountable because they're not known. Or not, they don't know. You know what I mean? Yep. Does that make sense? Yep. My, my Annie's throwing a lot of fits lately. She's at that age where she's beginning to just freak out and get bitey when she gets really mad. She yeah. bit Carrie right here. There's a bandaid on Carrie's belly there for a couple of days because of the biting and the screaming. The first time I was like, I'm going to crack down on this. Now I'm like, yeah, that's just insane. You can't reason with that. That's nuts. So I just, I'm just, uh, okay, we'll wait that one out. But if one of my older boys acted that way, hmm, I gave one of my kids grief for not obeying me immediately tonight. Because he knows. He's developed. He has abilities at a different level. With her, there, recording back on. With the older ones, with the older ones, we have a sit down and a chat about their feelings and my feelings and their attitudes and some principles. It's a different game. Because their abilities are more and their understanding is more, so they become parented a different way. And that's exactly, that's a perfect metaphor. It's not that the Lord's like super mad at his people all the time because they are just idiots. No, he's a much, he's a, he's a good father. And he, and he knows we, we can be held to a higher, we can be called to a higher account because he's cultivated, he's poured grace on us. There's understanding. Okay. Here's what, here's what we're pushing for tonight. Because we're, 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 I feel like this could easily land as a heavy message and it's not, it's not my intention. We have the privilege of actually having a heart connection with God and being led by his voice. And the very, the very it's, it's, and it goes so deep into the biblical canon that, that you don't even have to stay in the New Testament to talk about it. You could, spend, you could spend a month and a half just in your Old Testament talking about how God wants the heart. Everything, about, everything that God is after is the heart. He wants your heart. He wants you from the heart to know him from the heart. Do you remember the scene in the, in the, in, in the Old Testament where God shows up on the mountain and he calls the people to visit, meet with him on the mountain. Come with me, come. I'm gonna let my presence fall on the mountain. Come, come up. And what do they say? They say, I'm terrified. I ain't going up there. Moses, you go up there. And so instead of having heart-to-heart, face-to-face relationship like God intended, they get the Ten Commandments. They get the sacrificial system. Would it have been that way if they would have just gone up there? It looks like probably not. I was curious. That's an excellent question. I, don't, I honestly don't have the answer to that. But it, as you read it, it feels like 
the law was God's plan B. Here's one option, and if you don't listen, then... Well, his first option is come meet with me, and they refuse to, so he sets up mediators instead. The law is a mediator. Moses is a mediator. The priests are mediators. They wanted a distant relationship. They were too scared to come in for intimacy. They don't know what's in the thick black cloud where, where God dwells. Moses, oh man, I love this passage. And Moses approached the, the thick blackness where God dwelt. And you go, I thought he was shrouded in light. Yeah, I understand that. But something about stepping into the place where he dwells, there's such an unknown quality to it that it's described as thick blackness. You can't see anything until you're in there. And so are you willing to risk death, to obey? And if the answer is no, you'll never know. And they were unwilling. See, that's the interesting thing. Like the Christian life, it, like we, we talk about grace is free, right? It's free grace. You don't earn it. It's free, but it's also extremely costly. It costs Jesus everything to make it available. And it's free, but you can't receive it unless you pay everything. Not because God won't give it to you, but because your heart's too occupied with the other stuff you're holding on to. The reason he calls you to total surrender is not because he's demanding, not because he's difficult to please, but because he understands how the human heart operates, which is this next Sunday's message is going to be about, hey, Gabe. So this Sunday's sermon is going to be all about, about that, a whole principle of, like, it's, I call it the treasure principle. Anybody know what that's about? Wild stabs in the dark, any guesses? Now will you remember it? One, two, three, four. It's just the way it works. It's a progression. If your treasure's here, your heart will be there. You can't love God and money. It's not possible, not you shouldn't, you can't. You're either in love with this thing or in love with that thing. The reason he's called us to radical surrender, the reason that he dwells in the thick blackness where you can't see beyond is because he requires you to say, okay, shot in the dark, leap of faith, surrender, right? And, and like Alan was, like your comment was brilliant. The thing about wanting to, wishing, you know, do I just tear the Band-Aid off of total surrender all at once? Or does it just feel safer to carefully... But we all know, right, what, like what, what ends up happening. There's a cost. The cost is I'm still living by my wisdom. Which, and I, I trust me more than I should, and I trust him less. So that's scarier than it should be. The point of conversion for me is, and it's over and over in the Christian life, when I begin to trust him more than me. Right? When I trust him more than me, then I go, okay, yes, yes, God. I know I can't be trusted with my life. Me in charge of me is not a smart move. Okay. I thought that was a, a brilliant insight, the thing of the Band-Aid. I hope, I hope I don't forget it. I mean, I like the, I like the slower. I can see the, the progression, like the progress, but still, like, admittedly, after however many years, like a decade, there's suffering. I understand. And then there's some people, when I watch them live, I go, Lord, can I not have to do it that way? And sometimes he even says, that's fine. Like when I watch George Mueller, he sits down for a meal, his cupboards are bare and his bank accounts are empty. 
And he says, children, not with kids, Lord, not with kids. It's one thing by yourself, not with kids. Children, bow your heads, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this food that we're about to eat. And then there's a knock on the door and here comes the food. Now, some of y'all read that and you go, oh, that's amazing, I want that kind of faith. You know what I thought when I read that? Jesus, please don't ever make me live in that stressful environment where I have to pray for my, like, can, can I just trust you in a comfortable, like a much more, like, you know what I'm saying? I know it sounds so dumb when I say it out loud, but I literally had that conversation with him. You know, and, and George Mueller later on, he realized that he was wired for that and not all of his volunteers were. And so he ended up asking the Lord, can you give us more money? Because my volunteers, this is gonna give them ulcers, having to live like me. And God did, and they didn't have to get ulcers. And they did know that there was enough in the bank to cover the next meal. And they did, you know what I'm saying? Like, so God can be gracious with us sometimes when we're like, Lord, does it have to look like that? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't have to look like that. Say it, Jacob. So we are we to meet up every, every week to talk about something? Yeah. And remember when I told you about how I'm, I fear death? Yes. Do you think God is mad at me for fearing no. death? No. Absolutely not. Well, why do you think I do it? Because you're normal. Because huh? that's normal. Isn't it normal? It's normal. It normal. The only reason that... Because some people say they're not afraid of it. Some people say they're ready, they're ready for it. Animals would fear death. They just don't have enough longevity of their perspective like humans do to recognize, oh my goodness, I'm mortal. Like, you know, and I'm seven years old and my dog dies in the road and I realize, and my grandma dies of a heart attack and I go, my parents are gonna die. And then I just sit there and I never tell my parents and I sit there on the ground and I cry for a half hour in my room in total silence and nobody knows and until I'm an adult and say it to people, like, you know what I mean? Like, because that's, that's what it is to be a human is just to have that awareness and, 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 and to, to have all that uncertainty about, about the unknown. And that's why the gospel ends up answering some, for every single human who ever lived, a deep feeling of like, is it okay? Am I gonna be okay? Like that conversation I had in the car where God's like, you're gonna have a good death. The car? Well, we were dri- I was driving. And, oh, yeah. I'm talking to you, yeah. Yeah, I, I, where the day he told me I'm gonna have a good death. And how I was like, I didn't even realize that I had, was carrying that stress. Yeah. But he's not mad at you. Is the, is the, and everyone in this room knows that. Am I right, guys? Is God angry when we, when we have those kinds of fears? No. There's a lot of shaking heads, no. Yes, I do know what you mean. I do. And sometimes we beat ourselves up for not being better than we currently are. And that's a counterproductive strategy. All right, so here's, here's a passage. Numbers chapter, I'm just going to read it to you real quick, Okay. On the day the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law was set up, the cloud covered it. And from evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. At night, it looked like fire. And whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out and wherever the cloud settled, that's where they camped. And at the Lord's command, the Israelites set out and at his command, they camped. And as long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained. And when the cloud, it's, it's very repetitive, but I'm just going to read it because it's repetitive for a reason. And when the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time, the Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and they did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle only for a few days. And so at the Lord's command, they would camp. And then at his command, they would set out. And sometimes the cloud stayed only one night. And when it lifted in the morning, they set out. Whether by day or by night, they set out. In other words, sometimes it would start in the morning, sometimes it would start at night, and they'd camp, they'd go at night. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, 
We don't get that story, do we? Remember? We don't ever remember them noting they stayed in this spot for a full year, but apparently it happened. Whether the clouds stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in camp and they would not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. At the Lord's command, they camped, and at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with his command through Moses. Can you see they were not living by human wisdom? Can you see they were not led by committees or bylaws or human opinion? or popular, popular vote? Can you see they were not led by Moses? And can you see Paul in the New Testament in Romans chapter 8 saying that all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God? Like, this is why I say this thing about, about knowing God personally and being led by him and being, hearing his voice and just walking with him. We don't even have to go to the New Testament. We can and we will, but it's just so, it's the closest message. How do they start in the beginning, guys? It's Adam and Eve in the garden, face-to-face fellowship, and God shows up walking in the cool of the day, and they just suddenly aren't there because something has changed. But that was the plan all along, relationship, heart-to-heart, face-to-face, eye-contact relationship. If you live like this, then you might come to a season in your life where you've arranged your life to fulfill the thing you, you, you're like, this is, where, this is what I'm about in this season. This is what I'm focused on. And then it shifts. And when it shifts, you might start to feel like the things you're doing have stopped uh, feeling correct. Why isn't it, why, is, is, is there something wrong with my heart? Sometimes when we think something's wrong with us, what it is is we're more in touch than we think. And it's time to change some stuff. How many times, did you guys hear me talk about some days I'm like praying and I'm, and I'm trying to prepare for Sunday and I'm just like, man, something's wrong with me. I just don't feel in my heart to want to preach this weekend. And then like we get snowed out or something. Or I'll check the schedule and I didn't even remember that I had somebody else scheduled to speak. And I go, here I was preemptively assuming I'm not spiritual because there's no, there's no burden of the Lord. Because to me, the act of preaching is prophetic. There's a burden that comes on me. And if when I'm done, I no longer have the burden, it worked. It transferred. And there have been times when I went home three times as sad as before I started. Because it didn't find a landing pad. And I don't know how to put that into words. And I'm not talking about what I see on people's faces. I'm talking about something invisible that I don't know how to put into words. Because when I say that to some people, they're like, well, you're just judging us as though you know what's in our heart. I'm not judging anyone. This isn't aimed at any individual at all. Well, you just think because we're not responding and saying amen that we didn't receive. Bro, you'll probably not be the person I talk to about this next time. You don't understand. All right, John chapter 8. Is there one paper Bible in the house? Everything else is digital. <laughs> That's fine, but it's an interesting sign of the times, right? When I first started out, if I'd say a verse, I'd hear crinkled papers all over the place. <laughs> and like a... So John 8, 31, there's this... All right, I'll just read it. Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. And they answered him, 
We're descendants of Abraham. Make you free. They're reacting. Instantly, they're offended. The truth is going to make you free. That is a hell of a thing for you to say to me. How dare you say I'm not free? And by the way, that reaction reveals that you're not free. Because if you were free, you would be pretty chill about the whole thing, even if he was wrong. (laughs) You know? Okay. Jesus answered them, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And a slave doesn't have a permanent place in the household, but a son has a place there forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are descendants of Abraham. Okay, that's how he's starting to drill down. I know you're descendants of Abraham, yet you look for an opportunity to kill me because there's no place in you for my word. Jesus, give us hearts that have a place for your word. I declare what I've seen in my father's presence. And as for you, you should do what you've heard from the father. And they said, Abraham is our father. So Jesus, apparently not satisfied with the level of insults that he's leveled so far, goes as far as you can possibly go. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you're trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that he heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are indeed doing what your father does. They said to him, We are not, let's clean up the language, illegitimate children. The Bible translations always clean up the language. They're horrified by certain things, and they're like, oh dear, we can't even get around this one. Oh, I know, we can probably soft sell it a little. We are not illegitimate children. We have one father, God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and now I'm here. I didn't come on my own, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot accept my word. You are from your father, the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Who of you can convict me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? And then here's the verse we were all headed to, this whole, this whole big chunk. Whoever is from God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not from God. And then, of course, they go off and say, aren't we right in saying that you're a demon-possessed Samaritan? Conversation just keeps getting more and more mutually uh, <laughs> spreading away. But here's, here's the point he's making. Whoever is from God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not from God. The more we turn our heart in a direction, the more the information to the contrary is is veiled from us. The more we open our heart to God, the more Jesus is going to look beautiful. That's really what he's saying. If your hearts were truly open to to, to the Father, you would savor, you would treasure what I'm doing here. Now, even though you're all of the people of the book, you're in the book, you're in the temple, you're in the sacrifices, you're the most committed ostensibly to the churchy stuff, you're the leaders of the church, right? You're the tithers of the church, you're the elders of the church, you're the preachers of the church, you're the the vacation Bible school leaders and all this, and you hate Jesus when he shows up in the flesh, you hate the spirit when it moves in the room, you hate the prophets when they call you back to repentance, you hate what Holy Spirit is doing, but you love what 
you've built in Jesus' name. Matthew 7, why do you say to me, Lord, Lord? Right? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we pray in your name? In your name, Lord. They call him Lord. Who are these people he's talking to that would call him Lord and say, in your name, we are doing all these things. Pagans aren't doing things in Jesus' name. He's talking about Christians, y'all. Christians. What? Lord, didn't we pray in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And he says, get away from me, you wicked, you evildoers. I don't know you. What about this right here? What about this? I don't, I don't know you. Heart, 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 heart. Not outward activity that's religious. Done for him, for his cause, according to a worldview that happens to be Christian. He's not interested in people who use him to get their will done, quoting Bible verses. Let me draw that out just a little more. In, in my name, but it's not the Father's will. I don't know you. It's not this. There's not affection. There's not closeness. It's not my voice. It's not you hearing my voice doing the Father's. It's not you surrendering to the God who's there and then yielding like Abraham to the voice of the Lord. It's not the voice of the Lord, it's the traditions. I don't know. I know that Jesus is saying, beware false prophets that come to you and their outwards are good, but inwardly things are wrong. And inwardly, what's wrong is greed, selfishness, ego, pride, their agenda, their name, their reputation, their will. May my will be done. Lots of Bible verses, but the heart of the whole thing is may my will be done. Not may your will be done, Father. Not I surrender to you, Father. Not take over, Father. Not purify my heart, Father. Not be merciful to me, a, a, a sinner, Father. Lips are near, hearts are far. Matthew 15, 8. Can we, can we be a people? Can we be a people that, that love the presence of God? Like love the presence of God. Love the voice of God. So that verse we just read, is that like a broad statement for everyone? Like if you never heard God's voice, then you're not one of his. Like, is that what it's saying? I've never personally heard God's voice. I don't agree. Really? You've definitely been hearing God's voice a lot. Well, I don't, it's not like a voice that like... That's right. Yeah. Okay. All right, I just want to clarify. If you've ever had a scripture stand out to you as like, whoa, wow, that's really meaningful. That's his voice. Okay. If you've ever had a sense that what you did pleased the Lord... That's his voice. If you've ever had a sense that what you did displeased the Lord, that's his voice. If you've ever been like, that cross, that Jesus blood thing, that's for me. That's his voice. Like, that's why I say his voice operates in a, like a thousand. Because yeah, when, I, when I feel like, like. It's not a. It's not like a voice. Zook. Exactly. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> it's not a K Kentucky fried chicken yeah. Colonel Sanders with a white beard. It could be. My mom, in a sermon years ago, I said that hearing the audible voice of the Lord is very rare. Hearing, hearing the still small whisper in your spirit is common. And my, and my mom commented on my blog post, well, I've heard the audible voice of the Lord. And I'm like, be quiet, woman, you're ruining my metaphor. Because, because I've, I've loved even, even like, like a thought. It could be a thought. 
your conscience. Yeah, cause I mean, I've read verses before, you know, it makes, it makes you feel some type of way, like, you know, like I was supposed to read that, you know what I mean? Like, I, that makes sense. And I, the reason I'm so confident is because I've known you, what, a month and a half, month or something like that, and I've seen, I've seen you recognize what's truth. Yeah. I've seen you, like, learning to sift and recognize, okay, that's, that's, that's for me. I need to eat that. Like, that's the good stuff, right? Which is the next passage we want to get to, John 10. Just flip over a page if you're in mine. Anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by another way is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd. The gatekeeper opens the gate for the shepherd and the sheep hear his voice and he calls out his own. Okay, just let this beautiful truth come into your heart. He calls out his own sheep by name and he leads them. And when he's brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them. See, like you're not a generic, like, you know what I mean? Jesus didn't just die for humans. He died for you. He doesn't just love people. Like he loves you, individually you, specifically you. Like when, I, when my dad used to take care, when he, when he had sheep and I would take care of him, it's crazy. When you don't know sheep, they all look the same to you. Kind of like how people from other countries think all of us look the same. <laughs> and, and, we, and we do too. We're like say deeply offensive things like, oh yeah, that boy was Chinese and he's Korean. And they're like, what? That's not even remotely the same. <laughs> oh, well, that other guy was from China too. And the Japanese guy's like, all of you, do we really look alike? We don't sound alike. We don't look alike. We don't have the same language or culture or... You know what? Fine. And we're like, and then you too, you're Chinese and it's a Mongolian. And yeah, okay. But the Lord doesn't generically love humans. He specifically loves individuals. Like, and Jesus calls his sheep out by name. So when my dad had sheep, again, when I don't know sheep, they all just look like sheep. But I started to recognize them, each one of them. Their faces were different. Their bodies were different. Their trot was different. Their voices were unique. And there were some, and I, I don't know why I named them all biblical 12, like all, I named them all males and they were all ladies. All those sheep were ladies. And I gave them all boy names. I have no idea why. And they're, my favorite one, I named John. My least favorite one, I, I named Charlie. <laughs> and Charlie would, be, normal sheep would be like, Burr. Charlie would, had a big old overback. Oh man, here, here she comes again. But I knew them all, and they knew my voice, and they'd follow me. I could call to them, and they'd follow me. And I, I told the stupid story where they got out, and the cops got down, tried to call to them like dogs. Well, they don't know you. And then they threatened to pull their <laughs> weapons out, threatened to shoot them because they were blocking traffic. And my dad was getting a call. Hey, you got to get up here. These cops are escalating the situation. <laughs> like, you, that's fine. They'll run from you if you yell at them if they don't know you. You know, that's, then that's, so what, that's what needed to happen. Dad had to come, he had to say some stuff, and then, the, oh, okay. And then the other thing about sheep is they'll follow the button from, in front of them. Like, it matters not whether you're the bravest or the dumbest and the most scared. If you're going, somebody's following. Okay. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's a problem. There's some metaphors there that are insulting. But he, he calls each of us by name. When he's brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But verse five, John 10, five, they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from him because they don't recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees didn't understand what he was telling them. Stan, I can call you on the phone. You know it's me every time. 
I don't have to say it's Tim. Do you see my name pop up or do you just hear my voice? Is there any world in which Aunt Sheila would be able to fool you? Could she use a, a, a fake voice and you would... <laughs> it would still be Sheila pretending to be somebody else and you'd still know. So what if a fake Holy Spirit started speaking to y'all? Would you know? I heard a dude talk about a fake Holy Spirit and he said, here's one way you know. If you, diso, if, you, if you miss it with the real Holy Spirit, like say you get an indication of something you're supposed to do and you miss it, the real Holy Spirit will not mercilessly condemn you because he's not the accuser. He's the shepherd. But we have an enemy and the enemy is an accuser of the brethren. That's his name. The word Satan The word Satan means accuser. So let's say you, you get this impression that says, I want you to turn left. And you're like driving, you're like, why? And you don't. Because if you obey every random crazy impulse that comes into your head, I wouldn't say you're spirit led. I'd say you're going a little bit, taking this thing a little too far. Ah. Yet another good question. Because you have so much money. So is it possible to fool yourself into thinking the things you're hearing are God, but it's really just your own desires? Right. One day the Lord told me, you're doing it wrong. And I said, doing what wrong? And he said, being led by the spirit. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you're trying to always be attentive to what I'm saying and then do that. And I said, what's wrong with that? That sounds like exactly what I should be doing as a Christian. And he said, mm, you're turning it into a legalism. I said, well, how should I do it? He said, just offer whatever you're doing to me as an act of love because you're under grace. And I thought, that doesn't sound right, but it feels right. And as I've begun to do that, it's been right. Because sometimes we're looking at the surface of our mind for the leadership of the Holy Spirit and he's in the depths of our heart. I'm, he can lead us in those little things too, but he's not just some little feeling I had. He's actually changing, the, you know. So like that was really helpful for me because the Holy Spirit was seeing me start to go down a path of charismatic legalism where I have a, yeah, okay, so let's tie it back into this. So the, the preacher I heard talk about the false Holy Spirit, he said, here's how you can tell. Try disobeying that voice and see what happens. Now, by the way, if he wasn't free in the gospel, that preacher could never say that to anyone. You have to be free in the gospel to encourage people to, to actually experiment with their, what they're sensing some people have such a harsh, hard view of the Father. They have such an unbalanced, ungracious understanding of who God is as a person that, that oh my word, if I disobey, he'll smite me. No, 
he, like the real God understands that you're trying to learn how to recognize what's him and what's not. And so this preacher said, disobey that voice and see what happens. If the next thing that happens is accusation and condemnation and guilt and shame, you got him. It's a false Holy Spirit. The real God, the real God will give you a sense of peace about what's right and will guide you with a gentleness. Yeah, he'll give you another opportunity. So go back and make it right. Or, so like I, I talk about, you know, I'm missing it, feeling like I'm supposed to go pick up the trash and then I don't go pick up the trash and that's a whole week of condemnation. And I actually think it was the Lord telling me to pick up the trash, but it was me and being under the law and possibly the enemy that, that took a whole week of condemnation about it. It's like, why not just run to the Father and... I mean, like, if I'm going to rob a bank, I say, Jacob, don't do that. And I say, hmm. you know, like, that your Holy Spirit or subconscious, it's like... Yeah, our conscience is not the same as the Holy Spirit. When, 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 we're, do, when we're teaching little kids how to hear God, we, we teach them that God, their conscience is the voice of the Lord. It's not. Your conscience is your conscience. They're different things. You want your conscience to be formed by what the Scripture says, but there are times when your conscience hasn't been formed by what the Scripture says, and because of that, you'll feel, you'll feel dirty obeying the Holy Spirit. Or you'll feel cool and fine disobeying Jesus. Clearly. Tonight, Israel asked me, um, has the Holy Spirit ever inspired anyone to lie? And I said, ooh, excellent question. Because if you want to start with the baseline, is like Jesus, you know, truth sets free. The devil is a liar. God, God is not a man that he should lie or change his mind, right? So on the surface of it, it's like, obviously not. But then I go, hold on, Jesus did say that we're to be as innocent as doves, but as wise as serpents. And there are times when he will inspire us to be very prudent, maybe crafty, right? Like, like the one Anabaptist guy was being hunted and they're like, they stop him and they're, they're hunting for him. And they go, is, have you seen uh, Felix Mons? And he goes, oh, he's not far. And they go, oh, thanks. And they run off looking for him. Now, did he lie? Not technically, but actually, I think so. But I think that was probably one of those instances of Holy Spirit being uh, crafty or a Shifra and Pua. Pharaoh says, kill all the Israelite babies. I'm sick of this nonsense. Kill the boys, especially. Uh, keep them women. Keep them women. We need those women. But kill them boys because they might lead an uprising. And Shifra and Pua are the midwives and they don't do it. They don't kill them. And then, he, then Pharaoh comes, why didn't you kill these babies? Well, because you're an evil murdering jerk is why. And we're not obeying you. We're obeying God. Okay, that's not what they said though. That would have been the truth. That would have also gotten them killed. They would have been replaced with cowardly midwives and babies would have died as a result. So instead... They very much stretch the truth, and they claim, oh, them Hebrew ladies, they got them childbearing hips and them powerful uteruses, and they just squirt them out so fast, and we can't get there in time. Really, though? Are you telling me the truth? Israel says, well, how do you know you weren't there? And I'm like, ah, something in my gut's telling me that's a stretching it a little. You know? They're just so vigorous. Them Hebrew women's is vigorous. And I'm like, I'm not saying they're not vigorous, but... But my point was this to Israel. If an evil dictator asks you to tell him something that if you're telling him the truth, you end up participating in a huge evil thing, right. then telling the truth becomes sin. 
right? Hiding Jews from Nazis is a form of lying. It's also morally right. So, you know, sometimes there's complex situations. So. <laughs> Robbing a bank, not the same as protecting Jewish people from Nazi murderers. But what if I had to give the money to charity? Oh, oh no, we're not doing it. It's like... So then in Romans, uh, I guess I didn't, I didn't finish. Uh, Hebrews 3 says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like you did in the rebellion. Uh, and repeats that over and over throughout Hebrews multiple times. And then Romans 8, I started with this, kind of end with it. Those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. So it's about a heart relationship. It's not just about believing some things and going to some services. It's about love relationship. These are progressions. When we're under law, which is just the system, we're under this system, it puts us in the flesh, in the weakness of the flesh, human effort. So when we try to relate to God just through the moral law, it puts us in the weakness of the flesh, and we end up as slaves to sin, where we wish we could do better, and we try really, really hard, but we keep failing, and we constantly feel condemned. And so striving and failing is the outcome of relating to God through this system. Striving and failing and condemnation is the outcome. When we're under grace, it actually surprisingly puts us in the work of the Spirit because grace puts our focus not on what we should be doing, but on what Christ has already done for us, who we've become, who he says we've become, not what we ought to be about, it puts us in the power of the Spirit because the Spirit, I'm just telling you right now, if you sit in the, in the gospel, the Spirit of God comes on you. Holy Spirit actually doesn't really seem to get super excited about the, you know, the message of being spiritual. The message of being spiritual doesn't really inspire the Holy Spirit. What inspires the Holy Spirit is to make much of how the Father's affection is yours right now. You didn't earn it. It's a gift. Receive it. Jesus died. He overcame. He... he sought and saved that which was lost. You see it on Sunday mornings. When we get to the one verse of any song where we start to sing about Jesus dying and then resurrecting, there's something happens in the room. Sparks, you know, spark plugs start to ignite. Engines are starting to fire. Ooh. You know, it's the third verse. Fourth verse is always the rapture or the return of Jesus, something like that. But that third verse is the one where the spirit comes. It's the one where we start to talk about a crucified and risen Savior who overcame sin and death. So grace puts us firmly in the realm of the Spirit where we're no longer slaves to sin. We're slaves to righteousness. We're not paying out of debt. We're living from the victory. We're not trying to win a fight. We've already been declared winners. And it leads to this place where we're living as the sons of God with the righteousness as a gift we're enjoying fellowship. We're back in Genesis 2. Righteousness doesn't mean go be good people. It means I've already been made brand new. And then the outcome is no longer striving and failing. It's we're more than conquerors. This is right out of Romans 8. More than conquerors. And the, and the whole chapter ends with just the endless rejoicing. It's rejoicing that's so robust, Paul's coming up with, he's just explaining to you, like, oh yeah? Give me a reason not to rejoice. No, a, a famine, nope. Okay, well, uh, let's see. A big plague, nope. What if they kill us, nope. What if, what if the devil comes against us? Nothing, nothing. Oh, man. Uh, uh, uh. He goes off just listing all the, doesn't matter. 
Doesn't matter. Nothing's going to be able to take God's love from us. We're more than conquerors. In fact, you can't compare. The sufferings of this present time aren't even worth comparing to the, the, the glories about to come to us. Hey, hey, plus everything we're going, going through is only increasing our grasp on that which matters most. But here's the logic of the gospel. All, all the enemy's efforts to squash this thing only increase the purity of our grasp on the thing. Trials purify and, and, grow, and grow us up. This thing gets us back, this thing being the gospel, gets us back into the heart connection where God's on, the, where it's inside out. It's inside out and it's God's doing all this. This is not you, this is you doing it. This is God doing it. Comments. Yeah. Yeah. So the law was very important as a picture to Jesus. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm standing here trying to put that into my little calculator, and because in the beginning, everything they needed to know they would have known through his voice. Uh, and law was plan B of putting some very basic things in writing because they weren't in contact with his voice. So I'm inclined to say, I think I disagree. Where the law becomes useful is, is in helping people who are disconnected from God become aware, or Paul says it this way, the law is not for the righteous. The laws for sinners, the disobedient, those who uh, dishonor their parents, for murderers and those kinds of people. And it is a stopgap measure in the absence of Christ in you. It restrains, like we talked about last time, right? Chaos, let's put the A there, the O there. Chaos, law, grace. If you have people in sin, it's gonna be total chaos. And law, and whether we're talking about God's Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments and all the other 613, or whether we're talking about the law he puts in people's hearts, Romans 1, law restrains, outwardly restrains human behavior to keep chaos at bay. But it's still a stopgap measure. And, the, and the, what's, what's even better is when, when Jesus comes and he, he dwells inside of us, uh, which is why we kind of have this idea of the state operating by divine law and the church having a different ministry. And I'll put it another way. All of us are supposed to have a love affair with God's word. Like eat it, feast on it, drink it deep. Let it mess with us. Let it affect us. Let it, let it provoke us. Let, you know, uh, there's, it, there's a love affair with God's word. And when you use the word law, I'm using it in a technical sense here that, you know, the, the sort of moral truth. And, but when the Bible talks, like Psalm 119 is, this, is, a, is a, a poem that's a love letter about the Bible. But it's not so much talking about God's moral laws as it is talking about the totality of his, his scripture. And, it, and it's basically saying, if you'll internalize, if you'll stop leaning on your understanding and internalize his understanding of things, then oh, you're going to find so much life. You're going to find so much life. So in, in that sense that I started to kind of work out, I fully agree with you, but I, but I also know that I, I want to keep space for what, the, what Paul says about 
Uh, we're completely dead to the law. We died to the law. We're not under the law. Um, the Gentiles don't have to submit to the law because they have the anointing that teaches them all things. I, I said a lot of stuff. What else? Are you in the season? Are you in the season where you know how to recognize when the things that last season were on target might not be on target anymore? That's one of the points I was trying to make tonight. We are to be a people of the voice and the presence. We're not a people of just principles. Biblical principles are not as important as biblical presence. If I feel called to this in this season, even three months later, it might not be bearing fruit anymore. And instead of judging myself, it's okay to ask the question, Holy Spirit, are you, is, is the cloud lifting? Are you, are you changing some things? I had a friend and he was like, he would periodically take breaks from reading the Bible. And oh, I'm sure I said this before in here, but it made me feel like, oh, he's naughty. He's a bad Christian. And now I respect him because he understood that things move in seasons and he needs to be sensitive to the presence of the Lord. All right, go ahead and get up and pray for each other if you would. And if that's scary to you, it's okay. You got this. You can pray silently. Just put a hand on their head and pray, pray, <laughs> pray silently. But please don't leave without praying for two people.